Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. As Monocle 24 celebrates turning 10, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews from the past decade of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week we delve into the Monocle 24 archive and dig out some of our very best big name interviews. I've got Gandalf's hat down in the basement. In fact, you could tell your listeners I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> this is the magic of radio. I, I see also Magneto's hat in the corner of the room. Oh, that's right. You see it? It is. In that's terms of that's these... for young people who come round and they want to try it on. Blast one of my personal favourites from the past ten years. If I were to have a last meal, which I am not planning on having any time soon, by the way, I would definitely include a, a wonderful sushi by Weizu-san of Karuma Zushi. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Markus Hippi. All this week we've been counting down the most memorable moments of Monocle 24 over the past 10 years, from the biggest breaking news to the silliest moments on air and to some of the most moving. The clip we put at number 87 falls into that last category as the American writer Armistead Maupin reads the letter to George Godwin that he wrote to his parents to tell them that he was gay. This comes from an episode of Meet the Writers that first aired in 2017. Of course, you were out from the minute you went to San Francisco, really, to everybody that lived there and anybody that cared to read your column closely, I'm sure, would have realised that. But your parents didn't particularly. But there was one piece of writing that you directed really straight at them. Yes. um, In a way, it was cowardly, I suppose. I could have just called them on the phone and said, this and this and this, but I wanted to get everything right. I wanted to make it, I wanted to put my finest effort into telling them how I felt about being gay and how I felt about them in regard to that. Because so many parents do this thing of what did we do wrong? You know, how did we make him that way? And I wanted to just be very clear with them that I was in a very happy space. So I wrote a letter that I put in the in the words, I made it Michael Tolliver, my gay character, writing his parents. It's become iconic, really, an iconic piece of literature, an iconic piece of gay literature. It's the letter, I think, that every gay child goes to. You can insert your own name in there and, and send it off to your parents, can't yeah, you? Yeah, I heard I mean, that at the time, 40 years ago, and I still hear it, uh, yeah. amazingly enough. And it's been set to music several times. Big choruses perform it. Ian McKellen and uh, Stephen Fry have performed it in public places. And in a way, it kind of sums up everything that this book and Tales of the City are about. I suppose it does. It it took me less than 45 minutes to write it. That's the odd part, (laughs) because I'd been planning to say it for 15 years. Would you read it to us? Sure. Dear Mama... I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write. Every time I try to write to you and Papa, I realize I'm not saying the things that are in my heart. That would be okay if I loved you any less than I do, but you are still my parents and I am still your child. I have friends who think I'm foolish to write this letter. I hope they're wrong. I hope their doubts are based on parents who loved and trusted them less than mine do. 
I hope especially that you'll see this as an act of love on my part, a sign of my continuing need to share my life with you. I wouldn't have written, I guess, if you hadn't told me about your involvement in the Save Our Children campaign. That, more than anything, made it clear that my responsibility was to tell you the truth, that your own child is homosexual, and that I never needed saving from anything except the cruel and ignorant piety of people like Anita Bryant. I'm sorry, Mama, not for what I am, but for how you must feel at this moment. I know what that feeling is, for I felt it for most of my life. Revulsion, shame, disbelief, rejection through fear of something I knew, even as a child, was as basic to my nature as the color of my eyes. No, Mama, I wasn't recruited. No seasoned homosexual ever served as my mentor. But you know what? I wish someone had. I wish someone older than me and wiser than the people in Orlando had taken me aside and said, You're all right, kid. You can grow up to be a doctor or a teacher just like anyone else. You're not crazy or sick or evil. You can succeed and be happy and find peace with friends, all kinds of friends who don't give a damn who you go to bed with. Most of all, though, you can love and be loved without hating yourself for it. But no one ever said that to me, Mama. I had to find it out on my own with the help of the city that has become my home. I know this may be hard for you to believe, but San Francisco is full of men and women, both straight and gay, who don't consider sexuality in measuring the worth of another human being. These aren't radicals or weirdos, Mama. They are shop clerks and bankers and little old ladies and people who nod and smile at you when you meet them on the bus. Their attitude is neither patronizing nor pitying, and their message is so simple. Yes, you are a person. Yes, I like you. Yes, it's all right for you to like me, too. I know what you must be thinking now. You're asking yourself, what did we do wrong? How did we let this happen? Which one of us made him that way? I can't answer that, Mama. In the long run, I guess I really don't care. All I know is this, if you and Papa are responsible for the way I am, then I thank you with all my heart, for it's the light and the joy of my life. I know I can't tell you what it is to be gay, but I can tell you what it's not. It's not hiding behind words, Mama, like family and decency and Christianity. It's not fearing your body or the pleasures that God made for it. It's not judging your neighbor except when he's crass or unkind. Being gay has taught me tolerance, compassion, and humility. It has shown me the limitless possibilities of living. It has given me people whose passion and kindness and sensitivity have provided a constant source of strength. It has brought me into the family of man, Mama, and I like it here. I like it. There's not much else I can say except I'm the same Michael you've always known. You just know me better now. I have never consciously done anything to hurt you. I never will. Please don't feel you have to answer this right away. It's enough for me to know that I no longer have to lie to the people who taught me to value the truth. Marianne sends her love. Everything is fine at 28 Barbary Lane. Your loving son, Michael. Armistead Morpin, thank you so much. American writer Armistead Morpin in conversation with Monocle's George Godwin. 
Up next is highlights from a conversation I had with Cookery icon Martha Stewart. I spoke to her in 2014 and started off by asking her what she'd choose if forced to pick a last meal. If I were to have a last meal, which I am not planning on having anytime soon, by the way, I would definitely include a, a wonderful sushi by Weizu-san of Karuma Zushi. And I've been eating um, Weizu-san's food for 19 years, and he was on 56th Street before that. So I've been going a long time. <laughs> and what do you think, what is so special about what he does? It's all about the fish and about his lack of tolerance for inferiority. He is a perfectionist of the first order. And my daughter and I used to be able to eat a a wardrobe of sushi. We would go, instead of going for clothes, we would go for sushi. Then when he refused one day to give my daughter extra rice. Why? Well, because he doesn't do that. She got upset because she was very hungry, <laughs> so she she didn't want to keep going to him. But but she understands about his sushi. How often do you find time to go to his restaurant? Uh, whenever I have enough money, <laughs> it's all about the money. <laughs> it's very expensive. Is it really? Hideously expensive. I don't want to say that in front of him. Did becoming successful change the way you eat or ate? No, I, I've always eaten the same way. And I will find, if I want to eat someplace and it's expensive, I find the way to go. I can, there's, there are ways to get to places. And I found that out early on. There's always a, a boy or a man that would take me to Masa or one of those great places. <laughs> Who also loved good food. That's amazing. It's important to find the right people. <laughs> I'm meeting you at one of your one of your studio kitchens. Would this be the place where you would like to have your last meal? We're here? No. I don't want to have my last meal in my in my workplace. I want to have it in my most beautiful house in Maine. And I want Weizu-san cooking there. And I want the champagne maker there too. Is, do we have P2? That's a really nice champagne. And the sake is very good sake. And what kind of a room, where exactly would it be at your home where this meal would take place? Oh, I have a beautiful, beautiful dining room that has the sun rises in the east, sets in the west, and uh, windows on three sides, and a great big raging fire in the fireplace. It's beautiful. That's That's a great place to have a last meal. It's heavenly. And then moving on to the next dish, it's not actually on the, de- on the table anymore, but I saw you. I was wondering why no one has told me that you can do that with a potato. Isn't it funny? Yeah. Just smashing but it that you way. See how, because fi- potatoes are total fiber inside. And you know when you cut into a baked potato, it's usually hard as a rock. When, even when it's cooked, you open it up and it's like two slabs. And it's not tasty that way when you bash it like that. And I learned that from a potato farmer um, way up in northern Maine. We went to his farm to learn all about the harvest of potatoes. And he baked me a potato, and it was like eating the best thing ever cooked that way. So is that the reason why you chose it? Because it was something... Cute? Oh, no, it's cute, but it's also delicious with caviar and creme fraiche. I mean, there's nothing more filling or more delicious than that. Especially if you have an unlimited source of caviar for your last supper. <laughs> and what happens then after, after that potato and caviar? <laughs> Look at that's Kevin. He's like very happy with his potato. 
That's our birthday potato. It's amazing. Yeah, you can have that. When you think of your, all your travels around the world, on, and like that very much. when you think of the most memorable experiences with food, can you name one or two? You always remember like the best date you had with the best meal. And uh, that was at Lutece, actually, the old Lutece in New York. And that was a very fun, very fun meal and a very fun uh, date and a very fun evening. We had duck. I remember having the most delicious duck, bigarard, with dark cherries. And I think something lemon, like a lemon souffle for dessert. It was, it was delicious. And I, I take it it was a good date because yeah, you remember it. was a very good date. Yeah, that was a very good date. That was a fun date. <laughs> when you travel around the world, what kind of restaurants do you like? Are there some characteristics to places? Well, we look really hard for restaurants and we do a lot of thinking about it before we uh, go to a city. And we have quite a network of friends and, and, um, and colleagues all over the place that, that help us find the good places to eat. And yet not every time is successful. Can you give me examples, recent examples, when you actually would have found something or seen something that would have been particularly inspirational? Yeah, there's a little bakery on 10th Street called Chickalicious. She makes delicious pastries. So I went down to visit her, and we got very inspired. I wanted to see how she made her... You know, there's a thing called the cronut now, a big rage of cronut from uh, Dominique Ancel. Well, he his is horizontal. Hers uses a puff pastry in a vertical ring. And you find these things out just by watching and looking. She doesn't tell you that. Can you name people you would have learned something from recently in terms of, say, baking, cooking, food? Oh, yeah, well, um, the, the baker at Chickalicious, for one, from Dominique Ancel, another, from um, the... Oh, there's a very fine Japanese chef called um, Abe, Chef Abe at N Brasserie. That's another place in New York for Japanese cooked food that is delicious. And he makes uh, amazing uh, collars of fish and bones of fish that I love. I, I, like, I like things like bones and, and collars. That was Martha Stewart speaking to me back in 2014. We like to report from around the globe here at Monocle 24, but the closest we've come to leaving the Earth's atmosphere is the time we invited American astronaut James F. Riley onto the Monocle Weekly. Riley has taken part in three space missions in his career, and here he spoke to Monocle's Andrew Tuck and Tom Edwards. Did you have the skills that you then put into practice in space already was it an innate thing or did you have to acquire these what was that process like by the time you got to sort of mid mid 1990s and you realized this was going to happen is it sort of starting learning again or is it building on you know facets of your your skills you developed over many years there was some element of that of course but now one of the other things they, they train us a lot you know so we start basically from the beginning and, and learn everything we need to know from a technical aspect but one of the things is which is more indirect but really more into the uh sort of the personality type, was that I, I recognized that I'm now in the company of overachievers. And so I really had to step up my game, you know, to just meet their expectations, uh, which drove me to being very efficient and, uh, and correct some of the bad habits that I'd gotten into over most of my adult life. And and uh, they, they really uh, helped me pull myself up by literally my, boot, my bootstraps and being able to uh, compete with my, my peers. Jim, you've brought in a few things to show us. Uh I have gloves here. Yes. Uh, uh, tell us about these. 
Okay, so one of the questions that I know always comes up is, uh, you know, what are the things that you have to do in space and their skills that you have? And, and one of the more difficult ones is uh, trying to achieve what we would normally do here on the ground, but having to do it in an environment that's really foreign to you. And when we do the spacewalks, the, the suit and everything is actually very bulky. So you're now about twice your normal size. Uh, everything you're doing is, is very difficult, and, and you have to learn a new way of doing it. And so instead of just reaching up, for example, to touch something that might be over your right shoulder, you can't really do that in the suit without fighting the suit, and that'll wear you out over time. So you learn to turn and, and do different things and, and make sure you're, again, play to your strengths, figure out what works well in the suit and what doesn't. And so one of the things that I did as a, an instructor when we had folks that were coming in to do the spacewalk training for the very first time is before we ever even got into the suit, I would give them a little challenge, and and I thought you guys might be able to try this one out. So I'd like, I'd like to think come up for a challenge. Okay. Okay. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's, yeah. Give it, let's give it a go. Okay, so uh, here's a glove for each of you. Uh, okay. So obviously one hand versus the other. Are either of you right-handed or both? Uh, I, I'm, 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 right, right, I'm right-handed. Oh, so both are right-handed. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, it's okay. We can uh, do it. One of us need to put it on the left hand, really. Actually, that's fine. We, uh, uh, this will be a challenge. We'll see okay, who's, yeah, yeah. who's better at this. Okay. Right, so, and what I'm going to do is, I've got uh, coins here. I wonder what those coins are for. I thought, I thought <laughs> yeah. you were going to tip us at the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a nice guess. <laughs> okay, so what, I'm, what I want you to do is just pick the coin up uh, with the gloved hand. You can't use the other hand at all. Okay. Just pick up the coin with your gloved hand. And you can pick any of the three that I've got here. There's a 10p coin and a penny and a, and a one pound coin. Okay, so fine. You can go for the thick one if you want, if you think okay. you're... That was, good. That, was my, be, that was my immediate instinct, my competitive okay. drive. And you, you, okay. go, you go first, Andrew. Right, okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. Confounded thing. This is, this is less the same. Oh, so we, we, we've put the coins on, the, on, a, on a piece on of a, wood now, which... Um, I managed with the, the chunky one pound coin I just about one. managed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. So, uh, so okay. I'm going to give you the 10p here. Okay, let's try that let's one. Let's try that one. Be careful. I, this, this gentleman will have your money in his pocket in no time. Yeah, I noticed the 1p coin disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is almost impossible to pick these things up. Okay, I'm, I'm with, with defeated mitten. by that. I, okay. was, I was going to try rolling it to the side and easing And, and we must point out, these, these, are, these are not space gloves. These are, these are just regular wool okay, gloves. Yeah, right? yeah. Okay, so now, right here, yeah, do that same thing, but put your finger on the top of the coin and put your thumb right there and just slide in. Yes. So if we slide it off the piece of wood using yeah. an edge. And this is the yeah. technique you have to move, use when you're in space, I presume. Actually, the only lesson there is really you have to think about doing things differently. Okay. Right. And there's the usual way we do almost everything, and that is, you know, just pick it up, right, because that's what I asked you to do. But when you actually have to do it, you'll find that doing it the way we normally do it here on the ground is oftentimes impossible. That's the real lesson there. American astronaut James F. Riley, they're speaking to Monocles, Andrew Tuck and Tom Edwards. Still to come here on this special edition of The Curator, Grammy Award winner Gregory Porter, Oscar winning director Barry Jenkins and Gandalf himself, Sir Ian McKellen. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com.
You are with the curator of our weekly highlights show here on Monaco 24, and I am Marcos Hippi. All this week we've been counting down the most memorable moments of Monaco 24 over the past 10 years, and in this edition of the curator we are playing our very best big name interviews from that list. One of the best voices to grace the monocle microphones was that of Gregory Porter. The singer performed for us in the early days of Monocle 24 and chatted to Rob Bounty. There will be no love dying here For flowers in my Asian face is not a sign we're dead I paid for three A sweet old lady gave me four instead There's some doubt that's out about this love But I won't let it be There will be no love that's dying here for me There will be no love that's dying here Oh, hey, no, no No love that's dying here There will be My people There will be no love Dying The musicians that I worked with, Chip Crawford on piano, mm. Aaron James on bass, Emmanuel Harold on drums, Yosuke Sato on saxophone, uh, that's my traveling band, and, and generally with recording, I also have uh, Tavon Pennicott. I have uh, a firm idea of, of what it is that I, that I want to hear and what I, I want to be played, but I also want them to have their, their own musical charisma shine through in the music, and so I may have an idea and they, they take it somewhere else. And that's cool, too, you yeah. know, because it'll take me somewhere else. And so I think that's the idea of the music to, to push each other to, to different places. And, uh, and my mus- musicians uh, surely do that. Tell us about the lyrical content of the record. I read in an interview that you talked about God, love, uh-huh. protest songs. Yeah. Some of these things are explicit. Some of them are, Im- are implicit. You yeah. said to us, I think, between songs. You know, right. Well, I'm right. talking about love, but it could be money. Who knows? Right, right, right. And then when I say money, I'd, am I talking about money? No. <laughs> it's like, you know, currency. Yeah. I mean, even with liquid spirit, I, I mean liquid in the monetary sense in that spirit, love, energy, and culture to be quickly accessible. Unreroute the river, let the damned water be. There's some people down the way that's thirsty, so let the liquid spirit free. It's like, let this ready spirit, this ready love, this ready energy, this ready culture, let that free. And, and, and when I say unreroute, because many of the things that we love are diverted to its proper demographic. Uh-huh. And that's what I'm just saying. Let the music free. And I mean in all aspects. I mean jazz, soul music, me, Classical music, all of it, will be palatable and, 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 and loved by many people if, if we don't stigmatize it in a way. That's, that's what I'm saying. Uh, this one is uh, about, uh, you know, you write songs when somebody breaks your heart, and, and then you get a Grammy nomination for it. Yeah. <laughs> Water under bridges. <laughs> Somebody told me, get over it 
It's like water under bridges that have already burned. They say it gets better, it gets easier. The memories start to fade, and sad songs that always play you start to hate. Do you remember the days we used to spend? Memories so strong it keeps me from moving on. If I could go back, I'd take our worst days. Even our worst days are better than loneliness. Somebody told me, get over it. It's like water under bridges that have already burned. It's like water under bridges that have already burned. Do you remember the days we used to spend? Memory so strong, it keeps me from moving on If I could go back I'd take our worst days Even our worst days are better than loneliness Somebody told me get over it it's like water under bridges that have already burned. It's like water under bridges that have already burned. It's like water under bridges that have already burned. They say, they say, they say it's like water under bridges that have already burned. Grammy Award-winning musician Gregory Porter in conversation with Monocle's Robert Bound. Over the past 10 years, Monocle's Robert Bound has interviewed many of the biggest names to walk through the doors of Midori House. And our next highlight is once again Rob and the time he was taught how to play the piano by Ivory Tickler extraordinaire Chili Gonzalez. It's interesting that you can divide up the octave, which is the distance between this and this. There's 12 notes, but different cultures have different numbers of scale. They divide it up differently, so to speak. So the blues scale is only the black notes, which you pointed out were this. And we just add in this note here. Can you play that for me, Rob? So that is the blue scale now. So in theory, we now have all the tools that Jerry Lee Lewis had for his right hand. 
So one exercise we can try is to go like this. This is a classic Jerry Lee Lewis riff. Right? And so you have to remember that you have this whole scale, but you want to orient always. Orient, right, on this right here. And then use the others to fill in. That's one way you could possibly start. Should we try that? So this is like this, right? Yeah. Something's exactly. not right there. Yeah, what you want to do is you want to, you want to use this as a kind of little step. This is called an appoggiatura. The note that people hear is this, but to give it a little bit of swagger, what you do is you play the immediate neighbor note either below or above. In this case, it's below. So we have a B flat that's our destination note, and we're going to play the A natural right below it, right? Okay. That's the essence of the blues right there. Can you hear it? Can you, he- can you hear the life I've lived? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's right. got to... <laughs> I can feel that you woke up this morning and something happened to you. Did you, someone left you this morning? I can hear that just in that note. Either my dog or my wife yeah. clearly left me, and only this Jack Daniels can fix it, right? Okay. <laughs> so you see that you hit normally, but the B flat has that little appoggiatura, the little okay. blue note, and then you can fill in with any of the black notes. You ready? I feel we finally achieved something here, Chili. You, you were good. Uh, you were good, but fair master and teacher. I think. Now the semitone that we found the blue note in. I just want to point out that this isn't just something for the blues. For example, this is one of the poetic points of the piano. A voice can kind of hit the blue note in between these two notes. So can a saxophone. It can go like and go. It can live in between these two notes. But there's something tragic about the piano because can't bend the notes like you can on other instruments. So the only way to really approximate that is with things like the blue note, which create a kind of illusion, or just pieces that sort of revolve around the semitone, like, you know, what's Beethoven doing there except pointing out sort of the futility of the piano trying to live in between those two notes? I think there's something very poetic about the fact that the piano is kind of actually a limited instrument, but tries to be the sort of uh, orchestral instrument par excellence, you know? And one last thing about the semitone is that Thelonious Monk, the jazz pianist, um, he decided to play semitones, these neighbor notes, together, which normally should sound kind of wrong, you know? You know, but he kind of... And in a classical way, you can always rationalize almost every pairing of notes and turn it into something beautiful. So this, if it sounds dissonant dissonant at first, can become this. And that's Odessa, one of the pieces from the Reintroduction Etudes, for example, where I try to get that semitone and sort of really understand that any two combinations of notes that you can hit can somehow be rationalized with the right harmony behind it. So there is no such thing as a wrong note, actually. Musician Chili Gonzalez teaching our very own Robert Bound a thing or two about piano playing.
Staying on a musical note and with Rob for our next highlight in this clip from 2013 episode of Monocle on Culture, we meet the Japanese megastar Kari Pami Pami, who was on tour in London. She arrived at Midori House with one of the biggest entourages ever to grace our studios, which sparked this conversation with Robert Bound. Carrie, thank you so much for coming in to Midori House with such an amazing entourage. Should we count the entourage? I think we're going, I'm going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I think there's basically about 12 or 13 people. And I'd like to know, there's obviously camera people here today and there's journalists here, of which I'm only one. Um, what does everybody do that follows you around? Well, apart from my management team, I have a Japanese magazine crew and a film crew for a morning show following me around. This interview will probably be shown on Japanese TV as well. What have the camera crew been looking at? What's uh, Kyari been feasting her eyes on while she's been here? Let's see. Since arriving to London, I've filmed for Zip, for the morning show, in front of Big Ben. They've also accompanied me as I went shopping in the city. They've been pretty much documenting my whole visit to London. All right, and I want to go back to the beginning, Carrie, because we're kind of addicted to watching your, your videos on YouTube in our office here. I want to know how this style formed itself. I know it's a kind of Harajuku look, but maybe you could tell us about the genesis of your wonderful look. I always really loved Harajuku fashion. When I was in high school, I used to shop at Harajuku. I was basically a Harajuku girl. Upon graduating from school, I was approached by my current producer, Capsules Yastaka Nakata, who found me interesting and asked if I wanted to debut as an artist, which is how I started collaborating with him. Regarding the music videos, I especially wanted to make them surreal and fun, using a lot of CGI visuals to project a bizarre world. The clothes you wear and the outfits that you wear in your videos are quite amazing things. I want to know how, what the longest time you spent in the hair salon is. Hmm, it must be something like six hours. Being Japanese, my hair is originally black, so after all the bleaching and colouring, it tends to take up many hours. And the costumes, the outfits themselves, are like amazing things as well. They're sort of very wonderful, beguiling things to look at. How do you um, decide what look you're going to get for each for each video? Do you start off with a very clear idea, or does it kind of is it just a big crazy mess? With each music video, there is a hidden theme, and I have a general idea of how I want things to turn out. But because I never explained the theme, I guess they must just appear really crazy to everyone. I'm also not just about being cute or kawaii. I'm sort of aiming for an addictive sweetness, one that's not just soft and adorable. I'll add things like disgusting and gross CGI visuals to give it a sort of traumatic and scary feel. 
Yeah, there's a bit of a monster vibe in some of the videos. It's kind of like hairy, weird creatures. And there's that there's that video where your eye falls out at the end. What's going on with that? Well, the music videos are definitely where I get to do what I want the most. So it's something like a dark fantasy with scary as well as weird parts. You really can create wonderful videos using CGI and camera effects, and I really think it's where I can express myself the most. And tell us about your fans, Carrie. Um, you've got, I mean, some of, the, some of your videos have 45 million hits on YouTube. This is the stuff of legend. This is megastar status. Are your fans totally fanatical? Do you have to, do you have to change identities just to go from one, one side of Tokyo to the next? Uh, no, not really. Although, of course, there is a bit of that. This time, when I started my world tour, I went to Belgium and France. My fans abroad were going crazy, screaming like mad and chanting, Carrie, Carrie. I definitely have many more fanatical fans abroad. And finally, I'd like to ask, what's the secret of all these hits on YouTube, all these sales of songs? You sound great, you look absolutely wonderful. But is there a third missing element that I don't know what it is? Hmm, I wonder. Well, what I often get told is that I don't really have any competitors, even within the Japanese market. I'm not an idol. I'm not part of a group. But I'm not a passionate solo singer either. Singing and dancing, mixing fashion and music equally, there aren't many artists like that in Japan at the moment. Many people tell me that my genre is quite new. In a sense, I guess my style is quite new. And is it as fun as it looks? It looks like, yeah, I know there's a lot of hard work that goes into writing these songs and producing these outfits and the, all the rest of it. It's a big, crazy, it's a lot of crazy hard work, but it looks like it's fun. Is it still as fun as it was when you started out? Yes, definitely. Well, now I really do get a lot of offers to MC and such. But when I do my live shows, I really find it so fun. And when I have one scheduled in, it's like going to an amusement park. It's very exciting. Japanese megastar Kari Pami Pami speaking to Robert Bound there. Still to come here on The Curator, we continue to recap some of the very best and biggest interviews we've had on Monocle 24 over the past decade as we celebrate our 10th birthday. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter, to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. 
You are with the curator of our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24. As we delve into the M24 archive of the past 10 years, our next highlight is a big interview with the actor Sir Ian McKellen, who is in conversation with Monocle's senior editor Robert Bound. I've got Gandalf's hat down in the basement. In fact, you could tell your listeners I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> this is the magic of radio. I, I see also Magneto's hat in the corner of the room. Oh, there? that's right. You see, it, it is. In that's, terms that's of these... for young people who come round and they want to try it on. Do these come out on high days and holidays? These, these artifacts no, that's permanent of holidays. If you want to see Gandalf's staff, you have to go to the pub which I co-own mm-hmm. called The Grapes in Limehouse, and there it is behind the bar. Oh, right, it's the yes, kind of it's the equivalent of the Yard of Ale or the shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to uh, talk to you about some of the work of acting, actually, hmm. um, which people, as you say, people want to kind of hear, you know, when the set fell down or when, you know, yeah. you know when the staff broke in half or when something yeah. happened like this. But d- is that one of the things that people underestimate, the actual work of it? The script pops on the front door mat and there is a lot of, there is a lot of stuff involved before you ever set foot in an agent's office, let alone on the stage or on the set mm. of a film? Well, yes, acting is a job, isn't it? If you're doing a play, it's likely that uh, you'll be involved in the planning of it because who's going to play the leading parts in a play will be crucial to probably whether it happens or it doesn't. So I rather enjoy that because I I like to know what the director is thinking, how it might be, uh, what the design of the play might look like, uh, where we might be performing it, how long a rehearsal we might get. And even sometimes a little bit to do with the casting of the rest of the actors. So I feel very involved. But the film, the actors are the last thing to be engaged. I suppose, unless you're Tom Hanks or Tom Cruise, in which case everything's organised around you. But the sort of parts I play, um, everything's all rather set up. And then uh, you feel very much like a, a hired help and... Getting involved can be rather tricky because it, it's all rather quick and you, you arrive on the first day not to rehearse. You'd have had your costume designed and your makeup if necessary. But on the first day you're just expected to act. <laughs> with no <laughs> with gone. no with no real preparation. So unless you've done it yourself. So you do do it yourself, of course. You learn the lines and, and you puzzle over how they fit in, and you probably won't start filming well at the beginning of the film, but maybe midway through, depending on which location you're or studio you're visiting. Uh, but uh, yeah, it is work. Whether it's hard work depends how you look at it. Many people think that the last thing they could imagine themselves doing is is standing up in public and risking making a fool of themselves or talking in front of a large live audience again would be horrific to most people that is the easy side of acting to me the the, the difficult side is believing in myself to be the character and that can take uh, energy and imagination and a lot of chat with the director of course and maybe the writer and the other actors it takes there's a lot more time involved in in making a film or, or a play than you would imagine but whether it's hard work you know you have to get up early if you're filming. <laughs> uh, and you have to stay up late if you're acting in the, th- in the theatre. So, But again, that doesn't seem like work to me. And if I weren't a professional actor, I'd probably be a hard-working amateur actor. So it's just something I, I like to do and want to do. And you, you talked about 
having to be a certain type of Tom, a, a Hanks or a Cruise in order to mm. have the world revolving around you and films made for you. You've mm. been in a position with The Lord of the Rings and X-Men as well, I guess, where those films have turned into fantastic, very handsome juggernauts and you've been <laughs> the best the best known Hatton staff in town. Does that change the way that those productions work and the way that your involvement in them works when you, you, there, is, there is suddenly expectation and a great deal of it when so many people are working on that settlement? Well, the, the, the joy of those uh, series of films was the joy that I've just been talking about in, in a company of actors in the theatre. The it thing. was the same group. Not just the actors, because between Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, there was a wholesale change of cast. But the director was the same, the designers was the same, the makeup person put on my makeup was the same, um, my dresser was the same. It felt like being at home and very comfortable indeed. Well, when you're making a film, or indeed rehearsing a play, it does cross your mind, is anyone going to see this? Is anyone going to want to see it? Well, I, I hope they'll want to, because if I'm in it, it can be guaranteed it's worth doing. I mean, I don't do any job unless it's the sort of product that I would enjoy coming to see as an audience. But that said, the end result may not be good enough. The critics may not like it. The audience might stay away for any number of reasons that you can't quite work out. But the expectation of people coming to see the second uh, Lord of the Rings films and the second X-Men were people who wanted us to make the films. They approved of what we'd done thus far and they wanted more of it. Well, that's a very, very unusual situation to be in. And it makes it much easier, much more relaxed. You know you're doing something that's uh, already approved of in advance and that's not usually the case. So going back constantly to Middle Earth was, um, it almost at times, it almost at times felt like a duty. You know, there, yeah. there, there were millions of people throughout the world, people of all ages who wanted you to be doing the job. So for an actor like me who started in the theatre and still loves the theatre, primarily because there's an audience there live whilst you're telling the story, to know in a film where you normally don't meet an audience, and you can tell by the way that film actors arrive on stage at the Oscars rather surprised to find there's a live audience there and terrified as they read the prompter and stumbling over their words and not quite able to put one foot in front of another that they don't know about live audiences, but I do. And the only reason you do any job in our business is to entertain the audience, to please them. So the certainty there was an audience for those big films was uh, made the job uh, easier and you knew it had a purpose. The actor Sir Ian McKellen speaking to Monocle's Robert Bound there. Staying with another highlight from the silver screen as this next item we hear from the director Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, which won the Oscar for Best Picture in 2017, talked about everything from getting into filmmaking while growing up in a rough neighbourhood to adapting James Baldwin to the screen in his drama If Beale Street Could Talk and the responsibility that comes with having a voice. And the Academy Award... For best picture. You're awful. <laughs> Come on. La La Land. We lost, by the way, but, you know. Guys, guys, I'm sorry. No. There's a mistake. This, there's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won best picture. 
This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight, Best Picture. Thank you. Very clearly, very clearly, even in my dreams, this could not be true. But to hell with dreams. I'm done with it, because this is true. Oh, my goodness. A stunned Barry Jenkins accepts the Oscar for Best Picture for his film, Moonlight, at this year's Academy Awards after La La Land was mistakenly announced. Hello and welcome to The Cinema Show. I'm Ben Ryland. In those few short, though surely rather awkward moments, Barry Jenkins was catapulted to the top of his profession. And it was only his second film. In this special extended interview, Barry Jenkins talks about how Moonlight led him to his long-held personal dream of adapting the work of James Baldwin, and whether winning an Oscar really does change your life. It's hard to to feel it literally in the moment, day to day. Absolutely, there are things that I've always wanted to work on, (laughs) that I have the ability to work on now, you know, including a script that I wrote at the same time as Moonlight. I adapted a book by James Baldwin called If Bill Street Could Talk, but I adapted it without having the rights. And now the rights are mine. You win an Oscar and you can, the world is your oyster. So I think because I'm still working in the same way, I can't literally feel the difference. But, you know, if I'm I'm at a cafe or I'm getting on a plane, because the ending of the Oscars was so loud, I do realize that the world looks at me differently. Um, and that there are people who I do not expect to recognize me who recognize me because everything was just so loud at the end of the ceremony. Yeah, I bet. I can, I can imagine that. Uh, that must be the fairly standard response when people come up to you now. It must be, well, I suppose 50% asking you about Moonlight and then the other 50% just asking you about how that particular evening managed to play out in front of your eyes. It might be more like 75-25, 75 asking about the ceremony and 25 about the film because you know, many more people watched the Oscars than saw Moonlight. And I will say it's, you know, talk about bittersweetness or a blessing and a curse. I think because of how loud the ending of the ceremony was, there probably were many more people who went out and saw the film after than who had seen it before. So, you know, all, all to the good. Well, as much as I would love to ask you about all the the, uh, the gossipy elements that must have come with that spectacular win at the Oscars, I will fall into the 25% and ask you right now about uh, Moonlight. Because, of course, in its original form, it was a play and it had not been produced. You've spoken about how you felt a sort of degree of freedom when you approached that text, though, because you felt that there was enough room for you to maybe give it something new. One thing I think always surprises people when they talk about Moonlight and you as a filmmaker is that you yourself are not gay. The story, of course, comes from a play by Terrell Elvin McCraney, who himself is gay. I think we're so used to seeing this sort of unspoken divide between gay and straight storytelling. So... When a gay story does finally make it onto the big screen, there's often this immense amount of pressure that would come with it. Uh, We all want it to represent just about everything for all of us. How did that weigh upon you and your decision-making as you approached the story? Because, of course, it's not just a gay story, is it? It's It's a story about real characters who have real feelings. They take place in this area that you know very well. I kind of just took it off the table. I knew, maybe I should say I decided that there was no way for this film to speak to everything about the experience 
of being uh, gay or being gay and black or being black. You know, it just wasn't going to reach totality of any one of those experiences. And when, when I say that I felt a freedom, um, it was because Terrell Ava McCraney's life and the life of this character, Chiron, were so alike mine. So, so just like my experience of growing up in the same place at the same time with a mom going through the same ordeal uh, with crack cocaine addiction, I could draw from personal experience, you know, the barometer for is, is this right or is that right? You know, I, I just knew what, what was appropriate because I had lived uh, many of those things. And I often feel like, um, you know, because the, the, the piece originated not necessarily on the stage, but from the mind of a playwright, there was some visual work or visual freedom that existed within the piece. I got into filmmaking because the possibility of how metaphor could be carried through sound and imagery. And in reading this piece, which was so rich with words, with dialogue, I just saw, again, just an amazing opportunity, the freedom to take this one piece of art that was very at home in one form and just really run with it and see how it could be sort of necessarily embellished, but but how it could be uh, transmuted into a, a totally different form, carrying the same energy, the same themes, the same power, to be honest, but in a different medium. You know, I wrote the first draft in 10 days, man. It was just such a fluid experience. Film director Barry Jenkins in conversation with Ben Ryland there. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippi. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programs here on Monocle 24. And to play us out is one more highlight from 10 years of Monocle 24. This one comes from 2013 when we welcomed the Hot 8 brass band to play in our studio. Here they are with Ghost Town. Thanks for listening.